Welcome to Wellness Spring. I'm your host, Beverly Holt, with four decades of experience in all aspects of wellness. My esteemed guest today is Martin Gillespie, who went from corporate global executive to a global leader in metabolic health and well-being. He's also an international speaker, holistic nutritionist coach, author, recognized in 2021 as one of the top 500 global mental health leaders. Welcome, Martin, to Wellness Spring. Thanks, Beverly. And it's such a beautiful tone. Here I am in Glasgow to hear such a gorgeous Welsh accent from the other side of the world. <laughs> it's lovely to hear your accent. I've got so many Glaswegian friends and it's on my bucket list to visit. And um, yeah, I just thought I'd stick the picture up off Sydney because I know you've been living in Sydney in the past. And before we delve into too much, um, would you mind giving the audience um, a little intro to your life, you know, where you were born and your education and your parents, etc. So they can get a feel of you so they know what an incredible journey you've been on and what an incredible soul you are. Sure, thank you. And it's great to have the opportunity. So I was born in the East End of Glasgow and was educated here um, went to school here, and then I decided that back in the 80s, and this shows a bit of age, back in the 80s, I was intrigued by the oil rigs in the North, and, in the North Sea, in the North Scotland. So I decided to do a degree in hotel catering because I was so interested in what do you feed people when they're in the middle of the North Sea you can't have alcohol, smoking is prohibited, and food is such a central point of day-to-day -day activity and productivity of human beings. If you don't feed properly, you don't produce properly. However, my pathway went a different way. So I did my first degree in Aberdeen, which I have to say is one of the coldest places in the planet, but one of the best places to study. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Then I decided to do a master's degree in international marketing back in Glasgow in sort of mid-90s. That was phenomenal. And I I got into that bandwidth, you know, when you finish university, and I'm sure I'm not the only person that feels this way, that you come out of university, and even like when you come out of school, and you're a little bit unsure of what you've got and how to position yourself. I ended up getting a job, believe it or not, working for a drinks company, an alcoholic beverage company, a beer company, promoting beer to Scottish people. So what a job <laughs> when you're in mid-20s, you're in that euphoric aspect of life. Um, you're going to bars and nightclubs and you're promoting beer. Dream job. However, mm -hmm. it does get quite tiresome after a while and... Um, I went to a recruitment company, believe it or not, in the sort of late 90s and said, this is what I'm looking for. And then six weeks later, I started working for them, working in financial recruitment. And I stayed there for several years and they were a global company. 
and they had offices in Australia. So I was in my late 20s at the time and I had siblings who were getting married, I had mates that were getting married and you know that treadmill, that societal treadmill um, or when are you going to get married? Well, you've got to get a partner before you get married. You can't really marry yourself type of thing. And um, I decided to bite the bullet and come to Australia. And my original plan, this was back in 99, 2000. My original plan was to come out for two to three years to see what it feels like, to see what it's like. And I didn't know anybody. I had a job, but I didn't know anyone. And I arrived in Sydney in the July, just before the Olympic Games. And I don't know if you recall, you were there and it was just brilliant. And it was a part, yeah. I was going to say it was a party time. It was, there was high energy, there was parties in the streets, there was this cosmopolitan of internationalism. And I soaked up every part of it. But one of the things that was a stable for me was although I had a job, it was actually, I found it a little bit difficult to make friends, believe it or not, because so culturally different from the UK, but also so similar. And I didn't want to fall into the trap, Beverly, of being an ex-pom, as they would say in, in Australia. I fall into that, um, what is it, sort of palmy way of life, if that makes sense. So I'm a runner and I got involved in a running group. And from the geography point of view, it was in the North Shore of um, Sydney. And it was such a great way of meeting people. First thing in the morning, you're exposed. You've got no makeup on. And this was only the boys, obviously. No makeup on, no nail polish on. And you meet people from who they are authentically. And that opened new doors for me. I got very heavily involved in running and I started doing marathons and long distance running. And believe it or not, that's how I met a partner at the time. And in 2006, got married, had a couple of kids. And then 2012, certain things kind of happened. And just to sort of give your listeners a bit of a, a sort of summary, 2012 was one hell of a year um you know you start the year off and i don't know if we'll all remember the sort of 2012 from a technology point of view you either had the blackberry you were kind of really cool if you had an iphone because it was iphone number two or something android was just sort of this this alien word and i had my goals for that year i i was turning uh, 42 that year and I wanted to run another marathon 42 kilometers 42 age makes perfect sense to me however in the April of that year back in Scotland my young sis at the age of 37 lost her battle with breast cancer oh. and then six weeks later back in Glasgow my father was on a six foot wall around his house chopping over hanging branches and he slipped off the wall and he had a pair of garden secateurs in his top pocket and as he fell the blade of the secateurs pierced on the heart and he bled to death oh my goodness then six months later in the September of that year my marriage my relationship broke down and then in the November 
of 2012, I was diagnosed with stage four cancer. Wow, what a journey, my goodness. You know, just to have your sister die alone without the rest of the huge traumatic events, you know. So to put it to, to sort of adopt a kind of Aussie aspect, I kind of made love to Dan Murphy's quite a lot when I got the diagnosis. And to be honest, it's one thing it's very indicative of men in particular masking a lot of emotions that we tap into alcohol as our as our safety net. And it's not just men, but men seem to do it more than women, are a bit more exploited that way. And when well, I got I diagnosed with cancer, I thought I was going to die. Right. I think with women, we tend to blab a lot. You know, we got our girlfriends and we talk blah, 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 nonstop, and we verbally vomit everything. With men, it's like the book from John Gray, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus, and men hibernate into their cave. But... Um, I totally... Yeah. And it was funny, actually, because... I now have two teenage daughters, and one of the things that I that someone said to me many, many years ago, one of the fundamental differences between men and women in a simplistic form is when women go through their menstrual changes in the sort of late early teenage years, they become in tune with a lot of their emotions and their bodily emotions. Men don't have that regulatory guideline at a young age. And it's not until late 30s, early 40s, we start tapping into repressive thoughts and emotions. Hmm. So for me, that was a pathway. It was almost, if you take it in a sort of soccer analogy, it was almost like getting a yellow card. And at the time I didn't see that I was on the corporate bandwagon, you know, sales director and major multinational organizations, high pressure, high stress, but also high rewards financially and exciting times. But there was an imbalance happening in my life. And you don't see that until people point that out to you. And two key things that got me through all the drugs and all the, the dark side was looking at nutrition and also asking and receiving professional help. Well, that's a good one, because a lot of people, especially men, don't ask for help. You know, they see that as a weakness. I think there is, and in Australia, I think corporate organisations do a great job, but, but there is an imbalance. A lot of corporate organizations have the employee assistance program and there's an equivalent here in the UK. But there's a lot of distrust with it. Or oh, if I go and tap into that, I won't get promoted. Hmm. If it is the first time that someone reaches out for professional help, it should be encouraged and embraced. But one of the things, one of the pathways that I really like about especially the last 10 years for, for myself, is this continuous learning. And I know this is this is part of your um, background as well, that caring for health is not just the symbolic aspect that we think medicine, doctor, nurses, and that's it. 
There's such a wide range and complexity of health, but it doesn't have to be so complicated. Exactly. Simple is best, you know, like the acronym KISS, keep it simple, stupid, because people haven't got the time to explore and people need to know that they can trust someone and find someone that's reputable. And if it, if you use too much medical terminology and it's complicated, you've lost them. I, I couldn't agree. And one of the things over the last few years, I got very heavily involved. I was a board director of an organization called ACNAM, which is Australasian College of Nutritional and Environmental Medicine. And the way that that came about was back in 2017, 16, 17, I was doing what you call the foundation courses. And I was in this room in one of the universities in Sydney. And it was about 40 medics of different um, modalities. And we're going round the room on the Saturday afternoon because it was sort of networking, etc. And people putting their hand up saying, oh, I'm a general practitioner in Perth and Melbourne. And by elimination, I'm not putting my hand up. And the girl that I was sitting next to is a brilliant uh, general practitioner in Perth. She's sort of nudging me going, get your arm up, get your arm up. And I said, I'm general public and I, I'm a parent and I need to know some of this stuff, but also dilute it to common language so people understand it. And unknown to me at the time, the board were sitting a couple of rows behind me. And fast forward 18 months, they invited me to be part of the board to help take that message to the medical profession. And I was lucky enough to be a board director over the COVID time, which was, you know, a lot of learning, a lot of soul searching, and also an understanding that the medical profession get bombarded minute by minute with confusing information and they're struggling but they won't admit it because they're not trained to show empathy yeah yeah totally agree and you've covered quite a lot and um, what i wanted to say when i had my health and well-being center in rose bay i got known for the go-to people for health and well-being because I used to every month invite either a general doctor, um, a sports doctor, physio, chiropractor, or the likes. Because if you have an accident, you don't know, do I see an osteopath, chiro, physio, or whoever? Um, we had in my center like kinesiologists, a quantum physics doctor, an Ayurvedic doctor, and naturopath, homeopath. So each month we would take the confusion you know, debunk the mystery behind both mainline medicine and holistic therapies so that people could have good informed choices and be educated and inspired and motivated. So they're not frightened when they have an accident or get diagnosed with a dis-ease. So they know who to go with and what support to, you know, come up with. And I just want to quickly delve back because you covered a lot and my heart was going out to you, but I've had similar experiences with close family members dying very close. You know, I had three very close 
to each other or with various forms of cancer. And um, later on, I also got cancer, but I chose to heal it myself. Um, how were you feeling? Because, you know, that's tragic for your father having the accident, your sister and yourself, of course, and you were living in the foreign country at the time. So you almost, I almost tried to go into automatic mode. And the bit where I struggled quite a lot was my daughters were six and four at the time. And, you know, typical kind of parent, you're playing with them and trying to explain to them, daddy's got something wrong with his tummy. That's the line that we took because, again, you know, unfortunately, the the language, especially around cancer, is so negative. You get cancer, you die. Mm. And unfortunately, that's not going to change. But how was I feeling? I was petrified at times. And I remember crying several times. I remember when I was diagnosed and just falling into tears in my hematologist's office in Royal North Shore in Sydney. And just being so scared and having to understand that I didn't know some of the tools then that I know now. So I went down the, the chemotherapy path. Would I do that now? I would probably say no because of what I now know. And now that I understand what chemotherapy actually is, it's basically mustard gas that goes into your body and poison. I'm really questioning a lot of that and try to learn a lot. And there's brilliant work coming out in the US on that space. However, one key area which I think is hugely missing is effective personalized support for people going through cancer. Mm. Not just for the patient, but also for the carer. Yeah, and I totally agree. For me, there were days where, I'm not going to say I was depressed, but the anxiety levels were really high. Yeah. And I don't know if you recall the movie Trainspotting. I felt like one of the extras from Trainspotting because of the amount of drugs that I was taking. But I tried to mask it, Beverly, with good Scottish Celtic humour. And, you know try to make fun of it. I'll, I'll give you an example. I I remember one session and I would say to the, the nurse would come over and try and find a vein to inject me. And I would say, oh, can I get a left-handed cannula because it's getting to my left arm? So I got her to walk around the whole chemotherapy ward looking for a left-handed cannula. <laughs> the head nurse came up and said, we're going to get a big needle and it won't be your arm that will put it in. <laughs> and just trying to bring laughter because I think one of the I would say one of the things that's also missing in day-to-day -day life at the moment is good laughter good natural laughter yeah I totally agree and that's I, one of the ways I healed my my cancer I went to New Zealand to watch a British Lions tour there's uh -huh. 30,000 people there, and most of them 
were Welsh and you can imagine all the singing and the banter caught up with loads of friends and we laughed and laughed and laughed and I did a combination with um, aromatherapy Reiki every day from my cousin who was there and um, wearing different crystals around my neck and my um, jeans pocket for the thyroid and the ovarian cyst because I had one on my thyroid and one each on the ovaries. And I think mostly because when I got diagnosed, I was so manic, I'd lost loads of weight. And I was just relieved because I was seeing, I'd seen loads of doctors, loads of holistic therapists, nobody could give me an answer. And then when it was, I had a full body scan and it was diagnosed, it was like, oh, right, yeah, oh, great. You know, and they wanted to brush me in because all my <laughs> blood gases and everything was out of whack. And um, I was like, no, I'm booked to go to New Zealand next week. So something deep down inside me. And because they were all giving my partner my their mobile numbers, trying to get me not to go, um, I called my cousin and she said, no, Beverly, now is the time for you to walk your walk and talk your talk. So I was like, okay, yes, you know. So I that's why I think, and then when I came back, they said it was spontaneous remission, but going every three months for your checks up, my heart used to be like this closer to the day, I'd be so stressed. And um, then one day my Reiki master said to me, it was after my third visit, Where have you, what's wrong with you? And I said, oh, I've just been for my third checkup, but I'm okay. She said, you don't need to go. You're in perfect alignment. You know, if you look for something, the doctors are going to find something. So she said, put the story aside and just stand in your truth. And that's what I've done. That was 16 years ago. I think that's, I, I, I totally hear you. Um, going every three months to get, I was going to say touched up, to get checked. <laughs> I, I actually looked at it as a blessing and tried to encourage people to get a good physical checkup. But the challenge is trying to find a good medical practitioner can be quite difficult. You know, yeah. for example, they'll say, oh, your HDL is really high. We'll put you on a statin. And you put that fear back into someone and the damage that statins do to your body is really terrible. Mm. In Australia, for example, in 2021, I don't know if you're aware that of a population of 25 million people, there were 19 million prescriptions written for cardiovascular statins. Wow, I wasn't year. aware. Of which 1 million, and this is where, I don't know how you feel about this, but I have a belief system that I do think that medication with efficacy for a short period of time can be beneficial. Yeah, I, I believe every case is different. And exactly as you said, if it's not like automatically given without someone trying to look into your symptoms and finding the root cause, and treating the root cause, then it's fine. I've got nothing against it then. But um, I interviewed a top psychiatrist from London a couple of days ago, 
And he was saying it's not the psychiatrist's fault, for example, but they don't have any tests. And, you know, for depression, it's anti-depression or anti-COVID, anti-everything. And that's what they've been brainwashed into doing. And it's just down to their training. And um, I've got friends who are medical reps. And over the years, you know, you get more money for prescribing medications. And it's crazy. And in France, they definitely dish out the pills. I was horrified when a friend's child went for a cold and she came back with this huge bag of um, medications. It's... So when I speak to people either on a one-on-one basis or on a, on a general sort of group basis, I ask the question, when does your medic talk about a de-prescription protocol? And you get this blank face. So, you know, if someone's gone for a heart bypass, then, you know what, there might be medication that's needed to help heal that and medication that will help the inflammation for a three to six month period. But get off them as soon as you can with the right supports. It's critical. But do doctors and medical professions really care? And I would say 80% of them don't. There's 20% of them that do go down that pathway of actually caring about their patients. And they're few and far between. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Like I'm in Melbourne at the moment and my sister-in-law was critically ill with pancreatic cancer or within a year, my mother-in-law with bowel cancer. And um, when she had major surgery, we brought her home, my mother-in-law and um, there was no follow-up care. They said, it's a private hospital. They didn't have any nurses available to come and do her dressings and so forth. And um, But luckily, we didn't have any follow-up appointments, but luckily she had a great GP. The GP is amazing. And as a registered nurse and, you know, have many doctors as friends, I can highly recommend, you know, can't sing the praises enough for this doctor because he's so thorough. But as you said, they're so few and far between. It's it's quite interesting. When you look at the traditional professions, the legal profession and medical profession, they're very similar in their behaviours, whereby type A personalities in general, and they work really hard, give them some credit where credit's due, but they also earn a lot of money and they're metabolically 80 to 90% of them are metabolically unhealthy. In the legal profession, you've got that rumble of the Bailey type aspect, the big jolly lawyer. How many medics are actually fit? So you've got to lead by yeah. example. Exactly. They work such long hours. And as you know, through the pandemic, they were all working overtime. But I just can only speak recently from my mother-in-law in hospital. She was seeing three specialists, like the cardiologist, the endocrinologist, the oncologist. They were all by her bed about six and they work until, you know, nine, 10 at night. So we're talking about stress and anxiety. 
you know, and I, I think personally, because all the people that I see, they're all suffering with stress on some sort of level. And I think that is a big um, killer for the want of better words to most people because it's destroying their health. I think stress, so let me ask you, is it stress or is it a lack of self-love? That's a good question. And I would personally say a lack of self-love because I am a self-love coach and everything starts with self-love. It's like the oxygen mask on an airplane. If you don't look after yourself first, who you're not going to be able to help the loved ones around you. So, and that's what the world is lacking as well, is love. If we, if you want anything to happen, you have to start with yourself first. And I think the way with all the wars and different things happening in the world at the moment, if everybody could tune within, take time out, spend, even if it's five minutes a day, just um, meditating or focusing on their breath and loving themselves and say, I love you, I love you, I love you, you know, um, the world would be a much better place to live in. One of the things that I advocate when I'm doing one-on-one -on -one work, particularly, is we also don't recognize giving ourselves a pat on the back. Yeah. We're always too busy. What have I got to do? What have I got to do? And we never sort of take a moment to sort of go. And I, being Scottish and being Welsh, we obviously roll the R letter a lot. Giving yourself a pat on the back and saying, I am brilliant. And you can roll it <laughs> and your whole body vibrates. But what joy no, that brings to you. And it's a two-minute thing. And you mentioned there about self-love and um one of my mates who's a Irish lad in, in Sydney and I talk about meditation and one of the things that I talk about is you've got four main chambers in your heart but you can easily take your hand instead of the two upper and two lower chambers change them to the chambers of love, light, laughter and connection and you can put your hand on your own heart every day but connect with yourself. And being able to share these types of things that don't need technology, don't need the latest Wi-Fi or whatever, keeping it, you mentioned there about the KISS, KISS principle, keeping it really simple. Yeah, thank you. I love that analogy with the heart, and I might be borrowing that from you. That's okay. That's and you've mentioned twice about things you do with your clients. So what would be a typical session for you if someone came? I'm sure they'd all bespoke, but just so the listeners can have an idea of what type of work you do. So a typical session really looks at a lot of the things that are happening in their life, predominantly around nutrition, because we're brainwashed to, to think in Australia, it's a standard Australian diet, which is very sad. If you take the acronym sad, it makes you ill. I talk about what's happening in their stressful life, what's happening in their home, especially around toxins in their home. Do they drive a car? 
How often do they get it cleaned? How many chemicals? And I start questioning them on things like what washing powders you use because they're massive. What chemicals they use to wash themselves because um, this is where guys are better than women, actually. Guys are really simple. We'll get a body wash, a hair shampoo, a deodorant, all in the one chemical container and go, oh, I'm all clean. And women will have hair dye, shampoo, body this, body that. But that multiple of chemicals, by nine o'clock in the morning, we've injected our biggest organ with so much stress. Exactly. So I talk to them about that and I try to learn about why they buy certain products and what perfumes they use and how that might impact their metabolic well-being. And when that register starts changing, they start questioning going, wait a minute. And one of the things that I do say to them with caution is, look, it takes about nine months to create a child. It's going to take you that length of time to get to base level because there's going to be highs and lows. So be kind to yourself. If you fall off the wagon, that's okay. Get back on it. Exactly. And also individually, it's quite a challenge in some ways with belief systems. I'm a big advocate of intermittent fasting, for example, and getting people's mindset over to the benefits of things like a 24-hour fast is so beneficial for you. They're good at doing maybe 12 hours. They won't have something from 7 to 7. But then I start sharing with them what impact that has on their insulin levels, on their liver and kidneys. When they're putting crap food, for example, and every single day, you are the CEO of 30 trillion cells in your gut. How are you going to manage that? Yeah, that's good advice. I was going to ask you what's the importance of gut health, mental health and mindset because you've mentioned each of those. So, and when I'm working with corporate organizations, I use the language, what would your gut say to your brain and your brain say to your gut in a performance review? Oh, thanks for feeding me pizza and beers and cupcakes and sugar and all of this kind of stuff and breaking down some of the beliefs that, oh, my vegetables are fantastic, but you've got a gluten problem. It's not gluten, it's glycosate that's sprayed on the vegetables that's causing you inflammation in your gut. And one of the other things I look at is I'm trained in a protocol called the Bresden Protocol, which is a protocol to prevent cognitive decline, Alzheimer's and dementia. And changing that belief system, you don't wake up at the age of 60 with Alzheimer's. It happens in your 20s. You don't wake up at the age of 40 with cancer. It's happened 10 years prior. So you try and look at what, if there's been a, you know, you and I have mentioned there about trauma in each other's lives. That's got a huge impact in your life. You've got to unravel that at the right time. If you do it too early, you could relapse. If you do it too late, you're allowing too much. But you're in that 
I call it the washing machine phase. And a simple example is, you know when you put, especially a front loader washing machine, you put things in and you try to open the door, but it's not quite ready to come out yet. That's where a lot of people, I believe, are at in their transition, if that makes sense. But also you've got to hold their hand a little bit to get them through that process. Yeah, well, like you said, you know, it's like being a baby again for the nine months. It's about retraining, relearning. It's a new way of living. It's like a second chance of living and living the life that you deserve and desire. And um, you mentioned quickly about Bredesen Protocol. Um, Can you tell the listeners more about that? Sure. So the Bredesen Protocol has been around for about 20 years. And it's a kind of trailblazing protocol, predominantly in the US, around the tools that you can learn to prevent cognitive decline and Alzheimer's and dementia. Now, Alzheimer's has got so many different variations on it, but the commonality between Alzheimer's, dementia, type 2 diabetes, and cancer all come down to inflammation. And that's inflammation predominantly with your food, your your environment, your relationships, your um, where you live, for example, mold is a massive aspect both in the UK and in Australia, the air that we breathe, and it gives the tools to personalize that into your care plan, if that makes sense. And you can take that. And you can reflect that not only with yourself, but your loved ones. And that's part and parcel. Alzheimer's is the third biggest disease in the US. So it's breaking things down into really simple terms and trying to take it not as a fear aspect, but don't bring it into your life in the first place. And being able to give people those tools and the tools could be things like supplements, but my advocacy around supplement, why are you supplementing? Elimination has got to be a protocol before you supplement something. Totally so it's agree. teaching the real life evidence science base to prevent you from going to the doctors with Alzheimer's and dementia. It was interesting that you said it can be detected at the age of 20. So is there a test? that one can go? Yes, so there's um, there's a network of tests that we carry out in a, in a protocol whereby we'll look at many, many different factors that are involved and then it gets put into a database and it will give you where you're at now and then we'll do testing every six months to see how many changes that are happening. Again, the beauty of that is that it's adapted to your personal healthcare plan. That's beautiful. And as you mentioned, you know, if you've got it, your kids are, you know, toxic, if you're toxic with the environment and the mold. So could you explain a little bit more about environmental medicine? Yeah, sure. So one of the one of the easiest ways to look at it is most of your listeners will probably have a vehicle, a car. So 
How many of your listeners like that new car smell that will be in the car? You're inhaling that. The amount of toxins that you're inhaling is having an impact on your skin, your lungs, your respiratory tract, your nasal passage. But we're brainwashed to think, my car's clean. So when you look at the chemicals, for example, in dishwashing powders, they go into the dishwasher. They're enormous and they go into the plate that you put your food on. You're cross-contaminating that into your body. And regardless of gender, if you wear nail varnish or, or, or wax on your fingers, when you're eating food with finger food, that cross-contamination is happening in your mouth. Your mouth is your first access point to your body. So dental care is a critical pathway to making sure you're well. And one of the things that I advocate, again, we mentioned there about finding a good medical practitioner. And I'm doing it. So tomorrow is my birthday, right? So oh. what... Well, Many happy people, tomorrow. Thank <laughs> you. Um, I ask you a question. What do people generally do on their birthdays? Let me, let me ask you, what do you generally do on your birthday? Um, usually my partner and I go somewhere for an experience because we don't believe in giving each other gifts per se, but we have a wonderful experience, whether it's in a day spa or doing something adventurous. Beautiful. So one of the one of the things that I advocate for is that your birthday is unique to you as an individual. So you and I are both in loving relationships. One of the things that I advocate is men particularly to break down some of that stigma for asking for help. Men, if you say to your partner, for my birthday, I'm going to get a full medical, and that includes going to see a doctor, a dentist, and a range of medical practitioners and saying to your partner, can you please come along with me? Wow, that's powerful. That's and really good. From that point of view, it means that you're checking in with your doctor. And I'm not saying that we've been slagging medical practitioners off, but they are trained to have some good knowledge. Give them credit where credit is due. And they do have some great skills that you and I might not have, but it's a piece of the jigsaw puzzle. And they can help detect things earlier. So prevention is a great way forward. Absolutely. And, you know, I work alongside lots of brilliant doctors and they're necessary, like you're saying, for the baselines and it gives you peace of mind and for prevention as well. You know, and, you know, it's funny because I said, uh, I remember giving a talk actually at an RSL club in, in Sydney and it was an older, older crowd. And I said to them, guys, if you want more loving from your partner, do this. And they're like, yes, 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 yes. We'll do it. We'll do it. If you want more sex, take your partner to the doctor with you. So it was a bit of, you know, again, we mentioned about humor and bringing real situations not to make them normal makes people healthy yes so you know one of the key aspects is 
you're on this planet for and the work that you do is brilliant. You're on this planet for a very short period of time. Bloody enjoy it. You know, and one of the other things that I try and advocate as well, and it's a brainwashing that we have from a childhood, is setting the alarm clock to wake up in the morning because that causes endocrine disruption in your body mindset. Stop setting the alarm clock. Yeah, your body will um, get used to it. The chances are, like when people retire and they're used to getting up at seven every morning or so forth, their body clock naturally wakes up. And most people with alarm wake up a few minutes before the alarm goes off anyway because your subconscious is going, hey, we're getting up soon. Wake up, wake up. One of the things that I've, I've been challenged now coming back to Scotland, I have to say, in Australia, I used to refer to sleep as the Scottish superpower because it's free, but we don't value it enough because it's free. But I can't really say that here in Scotland. It gets quite offensive. So I've had to change my <laughs> language a little bit. <laughs> That's hilarious. And um, because you talked about health a lot, can you explain the role of a health coach? Yeah, sure. So I would say that in simplistic terms, it's a little bit like seeing a child or when we're a child and we're in a playground and we see a seesaw and you automatically reach out to someone you might not know that well and you reach out and say, come play with me. Getting a health coach can be that friend that can give you the highs and lows and bring more equilibrium or balance to your life. That's a great way of looking at it. Thank you. And what are your views on the connection of real nutrition for real health? Because you mentioned about food, what people eat, and you've also mentioned about, you know, people eat a lot of processed food when they're pushed for time, etc. So there are three key things that people need to eliminate, and that's ultra-processed foods, high sugar, and a thing called seed oils, which is vegetable oils. So my call out to, to your listeners, start reading the labels on food products and products that you use on your body. Start becoming inquisitive and start researching what you're doing. And simple thing, the benefits of Eggs, for example, Mother Nature, start eating more eggs. Be a good egg, eat several eggs a day, right? Um, one of the things that people might not realize that eggs, especially the egg yolk, contains a vitamin D element in it. And that helps your body because vitamin D is both a hormone and a vitamin. And people have this misconception that vitamin D is only from the sun but you need that from good foods. So getting as close to nature as possible. Um, and I'm going to be, there's a massive amount of benefit in a low carb, ketogenic style life and eating real foods for real healthy outcomes. Ah, very good. 
But as we both discussed earlier, especially when it comes to um, the land and environment, there's so much pollution, pesticides. And as I've been traveling in my camper van and go, we go to a lot of markets, but, you know, it's great to get lovely fresh foods. But I've just noticed even there some of the quality of the vegetables, for example, you know, they just don't last. Um, because my partner calls it maggot food because when I buy all the fresh organic, if I don't eat it straight away, it's often gone off in a day. So how how can people find out what is the best food and if it's pesticide free, for example, when you buy them in markets or grocery shops? Look, there's, there's quite a few things that you can do. One of the key things, there's a couple of apps that are now available. Um, I guess a lot of it is adapting to what's right for your own environment is, is a key critical aspect. Um, not buying fruit and vegetables from the supermarket. I don't know if you're aware. So the supermarkets in Australia, for example, most of the fruit and vegetables are at least 12 months old. Yeah, I've heard that. They go all around the world or they're sitting in refrigerators. So that... and. If you have the capability, grow your own fruit, grow your own vegetables. Um, I'm a big fan, of, as I said, of, of a low carb. So I advocate a very meat-based lifestyle. Um, and it's quite controversial, but believe it or not, a meat-based lifestyle can actually reverse things like type 2 diabetes because it's got the B12, for example, that the vegetables just don't have that in abundance. One of the key things I mentioned there about getting a health check, also, and this is the role of a health coach to work with medical practitioners, is looking at what your body is depleted of from a mineral point of view, because we automatically just think of food but we forget about the minerals like salt, copper, zinc, so critically important. And here's one for your female audience. If you've got fear, if you're a female and you've been on the contraceptive pill, there's a high chance that you've got copper imbalancing your gut. Wow. And then when women go through mid midlife and go through menopause, lazy medics will put them on HRT medication. So you've got, say the pill when you're in your 20s and 30s, and then you're adding more copper onto your guts, your microbiome is going to be out of balance. And that's where women in particular get a lot of visceral fat around their organs. Right. So this is where I think the role of a health coach can actually sort of help question why you're doing these things as well, and also highlight it with evidence about the impact that it has on your body. Yeah, I think if people explain and you know the adverse side effects, then you're, you know, and the benefits of doing something, then they're more likely to follow through instead of told, oh, you need this or you need that. So, without shadow of a doubt. One of the little tips that I say to people is first thing in the morning, getting a good Celtic salt or a good salt 
in water, and I don't know if you can see, I've got a big bottle here. Yeah. Um, that's got a tablespoon of rock salts in it, fine rock salts. Yeah. And your body needs sodium and magnesium first thing in the morning to help you regulate. It also helps take away those hunger hormones that will prevent you from eating crap food first thing in the morning. That's a good tip. Yeah, I like to put Celtic salts in um, because they're, I think, the highest in the mineral content, I was told by one of my guest speakers. Um, but, yeah, they sell them here in Australia. And I, I think, you know, the quality of the water as well is not good. So, and then when you lose use filters, they take out the magnesium and different minerals that we need. So it's about how do you put those back in? So like you're saying, even just putting rock salt in, that's a great way to boost it up. I like to have one glass of normal water to detox and then have the salt. Um, because you're talking about um, the role of a health coach, what's the role of the purpose of having the role of having a village of well-being. Phenomenal, because I only know, and you only know, a certain amount of knowledge. And I think once you get your tribe of people around you, you have that almost going back to your ABC, always being curious. And your organic growth will be huge and you know, I think one of the key things is you've got to also learn it's acceptable to question the advice that somebody's giving. I might, and you might give someone advice today being Tuesday, but it might be wrong on Wednesday. And it's also okay to say, I don't know. That's Those great. Those three powerful words are huge. And that's where a, a, a village of health practitioners, somebody will pick something up. I, I had a case with someone recently where they picked up something that was so small but had a massive impact on that individual. And it, it was transformational. And we could all work together. Yeah, I, th I believe this is the way forward. Collaboration, be curious, and be in the driver's seat of your health. It's it's funny, I've got a friend in, in Sydney and several years ago he said to me, Martin, I don't know if you're a genius or you're a lunatic going down this pathway of trying to get people to value their, their health. And he's very, very senior guy in um, investment banking. And I went to an event that he was holding um, in, in Sydney. There must have been about 100, 150 people there. 90% of them are metabolically unhealthy. And they're all on statins and you're, you're having a statin drinking alcohol or oh, my doctor put me on blood pressure tablets well maybe stop drinking diet cokes and all this kind of stuff oh no i like the taste and so i think one of the key things and it's pretty hard sometimes i know i find myself there are people i cannot help because you have to take that responsibility yourself Exactly. Great tips. And just to close, Martin, I always ask my guests, if there was one thing you could do to change the world, what would it be? 
Great question. Um, from the age you're born, learn to meditate. Wow, that's awesome. I love that. Okay, so one thing that I didn't get into the notes, and I would like to actually put this, because I'm, I'm asked, I've been asked recently, why have you moved from Australia to Scotland after 23 years living in Australia? So there's a little story here, and it's, well, I think it's beautiful, and I'd like to share it with you. So last year, about this time last year, I hadn't seen family in Scotland for many, many years. So I decided to return to Scotland for Christmas and come over for a month. Because as you know, in Australia, the month of January, one, it's damn hot, and two, in the corporate world, they go on holiday. So I've been connecting with this girl on LinkedIn, who is based here in Glasgow. And I met her on the Scottish people call it Hugmanay. Most of the world call it New Year's Eve. I met her for a coffee. And that coffee led on to meeting once a week, at least once a week over the month of January. Meet for coffee, go for a walk, getting to know each other. We're similar age, similar backgrounds, kind of stuff. And I fell in love. Wow. And I came back in May. Um, I was coming back for a variety of reasons. Came back in May, really connected with her, got on swimmingly well, and we've been inseparable since. So I actually moved from Australia, following my heart, back to Glasgow and falling in love with someone. Oh, wow, that's amazing. Wow, I'm so happy for you, and I wish you all the very best for the future together. Thanks, Beverly. It's, it's um, Yeah, she's a great girl. So where do your children live? So my kids are um, in Sydney. Uh, they're, at, they're at school, not very far from where, where you live. They're at Willoughby Girls School. And um, again, this is something that I don't speak about that often. I have an alienated relationship with my kids through divorce. Oh, bless you. And one of the things that I struggled with a little bit recently as i said i met michelle and again we started this conversation about selfish and and being self-love you've also got to look after yourself and what's the best interest my kids are now 17 and 14 they're in a very safe environment at school they're with my ex and um that area we will connect when the time is right to reconnect. And I still send, I send them cards and letters, etc. Um, but being teenage brain, it's acting at a million miles an hour, etc. They're finding their own pathway in life. And as yeah. I said, I had to sit for a few weeks to work out what's right, what's right for Martin moving back to back from Australia. Um, and it doesn't mean that I won't go back to Australia, but they have pretty tough decisions. And it's it's something I don't know if, if many people talk about it, again, whether it be men or female, around parental alienation. And it's something I don't talk about that often. And thank you for giving me the audience to do so, because it that has a massive impact on one's metabolic well-being. So... 
yeah, they're they seem to be doing all right and enjoying. I think about to go in. I think school finishes on Friday for nine weeks or something crazy that you guys have. Thank you. And thank you so much for giving up your precious time. And I'll put all your links so people can get hold of you with the show notes. And keep shining, keep smiling. And thank you. Thank, thank you.